now. Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate. Hello, good morning. Welcome to Sunday. It is indeed Scotland's talking. I'm Ali Bally. Coming up on the programme this morning... The Scottish Government come out on top of its five-year battle with the drinks industry on setting a minimum price for alcohol. The Health Secretary says it's a game-changer for public health. And allows us to get on with a, a policy that will help to change Scotland's relationship with alcohol for the better. But critics say it's just another way of making the poorest even poorer. And we're going to be finding out about the new deal for GPs in Scotland. They're getting more money for doing less work. But a BMA boss will be coming on the programme to tell us it's the patients who will be the winners. The GP will have more time for them when they really need a GP because the GP will have some of their work taken away and that means we can be there when you need us. You can put your calls to Dr Alan McDevitt after 11 today. And if you're a grandparent, what do you make of the accusation from academics this week that you're storing up health problems for your grandchildren by giving them treats and generally being too soft on them? Grandparents overall tended to be having an adverse impact on those risk factors, unintentionally, of course. Will you be getting a knock on the door from the health police? It's all coming up on this morning's Scotland's Talking. Good morning to you. If you'd like to take part, the number is 0333 2020 401. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Uh, we're kicking off this morning uh, with the minimum pricing of alcohol, which the Scottish Government uh, claimed victory in their five-year legal battle this week. Is this Scotland leading the way with a groundbreaking policy which is going to transform the nation's health? Or is it just another way for the government to try to control our lives and make us all poorer. Ten years ago, Scotland was the first part of the UK to bring in a smoking ban. Well, we've all lived, uh, learned to live with that, and, of course, it's plodded uh, many times now. But will minimum pricing be the same? Love to hear your thoughts on O Treble 3 2020 401. Firstly, let's hear from Health Secretary Shona Robinson, who's been speaking to our political correspondent, Alan Smith. I'm absolutely delighted that we have a unanimous decision from the UK Supreme Court. This is a landmark day for public health in Scotland, and it will enable us to, to get on with the implementation of the legislation that this Parliament passed five years ago. This uh, will no doubt save lives, it will reduce harm, and it's important that we get on and implement it as quickly as possible. The Scotch Whiskey Association says it accepts the ruling as well so does this mean you can now just get on with it? Yes uh, it does and that's important uh, because we know that uh, according to the Sheffield study uh, over a five year period we uh, can uh, save uh, 400 lives uh, due to alcohol related harm. We can have 8,000 fewer admissions to hospital that were due to alcohol related harm uh, through implementing minimum unit pricing so you know, this is a really important day and allows us to get on with a, a policy that will help to change Scotland's relationship with alcohol for the better. Do you think perhaps that life's have been lost over the last few years, the, the amount of time this has been caught up in the courts? Well, it has been frustrating. Uh, we wanted to get on reducing alcohol-related harm, and we've been prevented from doing that over the last uh, five years. But now that we have this ruling, we can get on with that. And, of course, we have been doing other things to reduce alcohol-related harm. It was part of a, a package of 40 measures, brief interventions, uh, making sure that people can get treatment when required, and a lot of other programmes that are designed to reduce alcohol-related harm 
harm, but without a doubt, price and consumption are absolutely related. This is targeted at those high-strength, low-cost products that do the most harm. And how soon, then, can we see this put in place? Well, I'll be setting out to Parliament as soon as possible in a statement the implementation time frame and the next steps. We want to do this as quickly as possible. Uh, there are a few uh, mechanisms we need to uh, take forward. So, for example, we need to consult on the, the price itself, given it was five years ago, and a new business and regulatory impact assessment is required by Parliament. Uh, and then we will bring forward the, uh, the, the SSI to, to take this forward. So you can imagine we've done a lot of work on this over the last five years. We are ready to go, uh, and I'll set out the next steps to Parliament as soon as possible. So by the end of this year? Well, it'll be uh, into next year, but we want to do it as quickly as possible into next year. And as I say, I'll set out the, the time frame in more detail to Parliament as soon as possible. Health Secretary Shona Robertson speaking there to our political correspondent, Alan Smith. So the way it's going to work is that in future, the price of alcohol will depend on its strength. Retailers will, by law, have to charge at least 50 pence for each unit of alcohol. The government says that will stop shops selling super-strength booze for pocket-money prices. So, in, for instance, in the most extreme cases, a three-litre bottle of strong cider, which you can buy just now for £3.50, will go up to more than £11. The cheapest full bottle of scotch will sell for around about £14. But if your taste is more towards vintage wine, malt whisky, or the latest craze for designer gin then that won't be affected. Interestingly, one of the most notorious drinks which is associated with Scotland's alcohol problems, Buckfast, already sells for more than 50 pence per unit. Supporters say this is aimed at changing the behaviour and improving the health of people who want to get drunk at the cheapest possible price. Critics say it's just an attack on poverty. Well, joining us now, I've got two people who see the issue very differently. Alison Douglas is the Chief Executive of Alcohol Focus Scotland and Christopher Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs. Alison, good morning to you. Good morning, Alex. Good. So this would be good news as far as you were concerned, then, this getting through at long last. This is fantastic news for us um, and for the health of the people of Scotland and, frankly, for our democracy. Um, this has been 10 years, this policy, in the making since health campaigners started advocating for it and making the case. And then, obviously, five years ago, the Scottish Parliament um, approved it unopposed. And since then, you know, it's been through the courts for the last five years. And, you know, lives could have been saved in that time. So this is a policy whose time is overdue. We need to get it in and start seeing those lives being saved. OK. Let's uh, also say a very good morning to Christopher. Christopher is from the Institute of Economic Affairs. What's your take on it then, Christopher? Good morning. Good morning. Um, I think it's uh, not going to work. I think it's going to have a lot of unintended consequences. But we will see now. Uh, in a way, I'm pleased that we've got this natural experiment between England and Scotland, and we can see what actually happens. I, I suspect certainly the bottom end of the cider market and the cheap spirits market will simply disappear. Uh, it's interesting what you say there about Buckfast. I think there will be a shift away from strong cider and beers towards things like Buckfast and towards actually the spirits, possibly to methylated spirits for people who are uh, very, very poor and homeless, probably a switch towards drugs like spice. Certainly there will be a large cross-border 
border traffic between um, England and Scotland, so people mm-hmm. going over the border in, in the train or in their cars to pick up cheap alcohol. And I don't think there'll be a drop in deaths, but we will, we'll be able to see now. And I think that groups like Alcohol Focus uh, Scotland and indeed the Scottish Government now need to own this and not make any excuses when it goes wrong. It was interesting in or, or on social media this week watching when this had been announced. Um, it was just, were you saying there that uh, people will travel to, to other places? That was something that was coming up uh, in just comments, you know, just people making a comment about the, the whole thing. That was coming up time and time again. Well, we'll be getting in the car and going to a supermarket in Carlisle. Do you think really, really people are going to do that? Uh, well, absolutely. People already do. I live down in the southeast of England and people do it all the time, going over to France and Belgium for both tobacco and alcohol. It's not a big trip if you've got a van or a car with a decent boot in it. You've already explained what the kind of profit margins we're looking at for a uh, three-litre bottle of cider. You're talking about six or seven pound profit. It very quickly adds up. You can stock up your car with bottles of vodka, bottles of cider. You can either drink them yourself or you can sell them on illegally. Um, There's money to be made there and people don't turn down those kind of opportunities. Where there's money to be made, there can be an abuse of the system, Alison. What do you think? Well, I mean, clearly, if people were doing that on a commercial basis, that becomes a matter for the police. Um, So I think that's a kind of separate issue, whether individuals are going to feel motivated. Well, you know, a a tank of petrol is, uh, is pretty expensive these days. You'd need to be drinking a fair amount to make it worth your while to to make that trip. The other point I would make is, you know, Scotland is leading the way here internationally, but our Irish neighbours, our Northern Irish neighbours and the Welsh are already actively pursuing minimum unit pricing. Um, And I think and I hope that it won't be long before England um, recognises that this is an extremely effective policy and they follow suit. So then that, that... um, what, what I believe is a bit of a spurious argument would completely evaporate if we had it throughout the British Isles. Mm. Alison, what, what about those who are alcohol dependent, alcoholics? Let's put it this way. You know, they're still going to try and get their alcohol somewhere or other, whether it's drinking cheap cider or not. If they've got to pay more for it, are their families, you know, if they've got kids in the family, are they not going to suffer? Well, a lot of people assume that uh, people who are alcohol dependent, that they need to drink a certain amount of alcohol every day. But the reality is that um, they actually drink on a budget. They, they, um, they're aware of how much money they've got and they, they tend to drink within that budget. And that will vary on a day-to-day basis. And so people who work in addictions will tell you that um, people people drift as they develop an alcohol problem. They drift down towards the cheapest alcohol and they drink um, based on the budget that they've got available. So the evidence suggests that even dependent drinkers will reduce the amount that they're drinking. And in fact, this is a very targeted policy. The the modelling suggests that the the harmful and hazardous drinkers, or sorry, rather the, the most harmful drinkers, will reduce their consumption by 10%. And that is the difference between life and death for those people. Mm. Uh, Christopher, you're, you're from the Institute of Economic Affairs. Is the only winner here, and, and I pose this question because I didn't know the answer. I was asked this a couple of days ago and I don't know the answer. Is it a case that it's the retailers 
who are going to win out of this. Because if the price of, let's just say, let's say the bottle of cider goes from £3.50 up to more than £11, that money is going to the retailer, is it not? It would do if people continue to buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and people do assume that supermarkets are going to make money out of this. I think they probably will make a little bit extra, but nowhere near that, that kind of profit margin. What's going to happen is that all the cheap stuff will basically disappear from the market. And so if you've got to spend £11.50 to get those many units of alcohol, you then have a free choice of what drink you would actually prefer. At the moment, alcoholics drink the cheapest cider, not because they have a particular taste for cider, but because it's cheap. And so if they actually prefer the taste of whiskey or vodka or brandy, they will drink the cheapest brands of whiskey, vodka and brandy. It would be a totally, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, the, a level playing field, if you like. So it would be based entirely on taste. Um, so I don't think there will be excess profits to be had. I think that people will go from drinking the cheapest stuff to what is currently mid-range. Right. So, Alison, they'll move their taste but still get it. Um, but they'll drink less. That's the important thing. They'll drink less, and because they're drinking less, they're, they'll experience less harm. They're less likely to be hospitalised. They're less likely to die. So, th so that's, the, that's, that's what this policy is designed to achieve, and that's what it will achieve. Um, on the point of the, the potential profits, I mean, we've long advocated for um, some kind of windfall tax that if there is that, uh, if there is that additional in income to supermarkets or, or indeed it flows down the chain to producers, that that money should be uh, brought back into, into the public purse to offset the costs, the huge costs of dealing with alcohol-related harm. What about the comments, Alison, that were coming from um, some people who were just uh, stopped in the street on television news, on radio news, asked for their comments? It seemed to coming through again quite a few times that it was those who who bought the odd bottle of wine or, you know, who, who didn't depend on alcohol, but they were being penalised because of other problems other people's problems. Yeah, well, I mean, the, this policy will not affect prices in the pubs, for example, because they're, you know, pretty much uh, all above 50 pence per unit. And the estimated effect on a moderate drinker is around about £2 per year additional cost. So that's, that's the reality, is that this is a policy that really targets the people who are drinking at levels that are really harming their health, and moderate drinkers will be pretty much unaffected. Right. So, uh, um, Christopher, the Institute of Economic Affairs, do you actually uh, represent the, the uh, spirits industry or the drinks industry then? Is that who you're talking on behalf, or have you got a completely independent view here? No, we're not talking about anybody. We're a free market institute, and we like to see free markets, and minimum pricing is the exact opposite uh, of a free market. Any kind of uh, intervention by the state to put the price up is going to be bad for consumers. But at least with tax revenue, you do get some money to spend on public services. Alison's talking there about, well, if it works out that we, we've given excess profits to retailers or the drinks industry, we'll have a windfall tax. If it turns out we have cross-border traffic with England, England have to bring it in. You know, we're already hearing these excuses being made about what are really quite obvious unintended consequences. And it does really come back to the effects on the mass of people who are not alcoholics. I don't believe for a second that it's only going to cost a moderate drinker £2 a year. That's the difference between a cheap bottle of whiskey now and a bottle of whiskey next year. I I assume moderate drinkers drink more than one bottle of whiskey a year. It's going to cost everybody a great deal of money. It's going to cost Scottish consumers tens of millions of pounds a year for benefits that are completely unproven based on a highly unrealistic 
computer model, which, as Alison says, assumes that heavy drinkers and alcoholics are more price sensitive than moderate consumers. That's not true. That's not what the economic evidence says. It's going to hit everybody really quite hard. Alison, you want to come back on that? Yes, um, well, I mean, Chris and uh, the Global Spirits producers who have uh, consistently obstructed this policy are really, you know, against the, the flow of opinion here. You know, the Scottish Parliament was convinced, um, we've had two uh, courts that have been convinced that this will have an impact on consumption and harm. We've got children's charities, homeless charities, the police, um, all of the health community who have looked at the evidence and recognised that this is um, one of the, the most uh, effective policies that we could possibly implement to reduce the massive toll of alcohol consumption and harm on our country. You know, this is killing 24 Scots a week. So um, we need to do something about it. This is not the only policy that we need to be adopting, but there's every reason to believe that this will save, you know, up to 120 lives a year by the time it takes full effect. Do, do you accept, Christopher, that, you know, these figures that uh, Alice is talking about there, the amount of Scots that are dying every week, every year through alcohol, surely something has to be done? Well, I mean, if you actually look, look at alcohol consumption in Scotland and the number of alcohol-related deaths, um, they have been falling very significantly over the course of the last decade. It's interesting that the Sheffield University model predicts that this policy, which people have been spending the last five years um, campaigning very hard for, is going to reduce alcohol consumption supposedly by 3.5%. Alcohol consumption since 2009, when people started talking about this policy, has dropped by 11%. Dropped by four times as much as minimum pricing is supposed to uh, achieve. Um, and even if it does save 50 lives or even 100 lives, even that would actually not be enough to be measured. If you look at the figures, they fluctuate, fluctuate by more than that a year on year anyway. So we're talking about a policy which is supposed to be world-leading, which is supposed to be the real game-changer. And yet, actually, even if the model is correct, and I don't believe it is, the effect on alcohol consumption and on alcohol-related deaths will actually be too small to measure. Well, it's, it's an interesting one we're going to have to watch as time goes on, uh, Alison. You obviously see it one way and uh, Christopher sees it another. Um, the, the last thought, Alison, from, from you? Well, I mean, as, as Christopher said, you know, we now have a chance to uh, put this policy into practice and show the benefits that it will deliver. You know, people underestimated the impact of the smoking ban um, and, you know, look how that has transformed smoking and, you know, our wider health. So uh, I think there's every cause for optimism that this could really start to change um, the way that we're drinking and the impact that that's having on our health and our families. Let's not forget, it's not just drinkers that are affected by uh, high levels of consumption. It's family relationships, it's children, um, and the rest of us, uh, are, you know, the, the huge cost to our economy. Um, so this is a policy that is well overdue and will pay dividends for Scotland. Christopher, your last thoughts, please. Well, let's come back in a couple of years and uh, review it. I suspect by then Alison will be calling for millions of pounds of taxpayers' money to be spent on enforcement to deal with the illicit trade uh, uh, of alcohol between 
England and Scotland and will be calling for the minimum price to go up to 70 or 80p because it didn't work at 50p. Christopher Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs and Alison Douglas is the Chief Executive of Alcohol Focus Scotland. So there's their thoughts. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. If you've got a comment and a few coming in, then uh, give us a call. All treble 3 2020 You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Louise, good morning. She says about minimum pricing for alcohol. For some people, there will always be money for booze and facts. It just means something else will be compromised, i.e. food, kids' welfare, etc. OK, Louise, thank you for your thoughts. Barney, hello, good morning to you. Morning, Ali. Morning, what's your point, Barney? Uh, I, it just, I, I wonder where, where people get the idea that we get cheap alcohol in this country. We, we, we pay some of the highest prices in Western Europe. Uh, for, for, for drink we buy in supermarkets or bars. You know, when you go abroad on holiday, uh, you, you see the difference. And, you know, we're talking about the booze runs to, we're going to be doing it over the border. But the, the original booze runs, runs were to France mm-hmm. uh, because we were getting it so much cheaper than we could buy in this country. I, th- I think we're just being conned all the time. Well, C- Christopher Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs was saying that I- I- in um, his part of England, where he is, uh, that they still make these uh, trips. Yep. It's, it's, um, I don't think it's as economically viable for uh, many of us up here to go down and make the- those trips there. Um, mm-hmm. But would you get in a car and go over the border to Carlisle to, to buy some cheap booze? I certainly would, Ali. Yeah, really? I, certainly, I certainly would. Yeah, um, I just think we we're, we're, we're fed this stuff. All yeah, cheap booze is there. I don't think cheap booze encourages alcohol. Uh, somebody could become an alcoholic. Uh, the, the way that Alison was speaking about it, alcoholism was a choice. Uh, yeah, the, the, the old budget. I've, I've never known an alcoholic to budget. Uh, what he drinks. You no, know, I, I, was, I was a bit surprised at that comment as well, but I was taking uh-huh. it that if she, you know, she's talking about those who work with alcohol problems, and I, I presumed that that was a fact, you know, that they'd come up with this uh, situation, but uh, I've known a few alcoholics, and like you, they, they never actually budgeted unless, right. you know, right. it was yeah. a case of, well, I've got five or so, I'll go and buy something. Yeah, it's, it's like saying somebody's a bad lad, and the harder you kick them up the arse, the better they'll become. It's, um... It really is uh, uh, short-term stuff, really, you know. Just to say an alcoholic budget, say he's going to budget, mm. so it's just disgrace. And, and also, Ali, who's going to, as, as you mentioned earlier on, who's going to be making the profits out of this? You know, it's certainly not going to be uh, uh, Joe Bloggs on the street. No, no, well, that's, that's <laughs> what I was trying to get to, and I have put the question to two or three people. Is it the retailers that are going to benefit from this, or is it the people that make the drink? And mm-hmm. um, it seems to come back that it, it's the retailer, but then again, uh, Christopher's saying it's going to phase out the cheap alcohol. Yeah, just, yeah. Just, but it still means, you know, that if, so, if somebody's got a bottle of cider on the shelf that costs £3.50, and it goes up to more than eleven pounds. Uh, that's a that's a fair bit of profits going. As, as, it's pointless just turning around and saying, "Well, people won't buy it anymore." Of course they will. You know, yeah, they, they will. They yeah, will. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Barney. Thank you very much indeed for your call. Thank you. Nice speaking, you, Ali. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye bye, John. Good morning to you. Is that you, Ali? No, it's Ali. How are you? Right, fine. Ali, I was listening to that man there earlier on. There, people are going to be coming down, coming down there. 
John, could you go and turn your radio off, please? Because yeah, we, we'll be talking to three people if we keep this up. Right. right. Okay. Right. <laughs> yes, always turn your radio off. But I've been saying that for 30 odd years and people still listening to themselves. Right. So you back with us, John? You're there. I'm here. Right. Yes. Right. Carry I'm on. Saying, I was in a pub in Dundee uh, do 18 months ago. And uh, in the pub, pint of, this chap is drinking a pint of cider up from London. It's £3.10. I said, what are you paying for that in London? This was 18 months ago. £5.60. £5.60. Uh-huh. And have you ever been in King's Cross before you got on the train? I've done it often years, but it was in the 80s. And by God, you were about 50% dearer than any other licensed grocer up in Scotland. So don't tell me people are going to be running down to England. No thing it's really going to, you're going to feel the effect of you drinking that paint stripper. That's the only thing. Yeah, that, well, that's, that seems to be what it's, it's aimed at, doesn't it? That's, that's, that's where it's going at. But you, you're talking about a different thing. You're talking about London prices. I mean, that's, well, like, that's he's different on a, he's from everywhere else. People are going to be running into England. Right. I've been in England often. And by God, you see the difference in the prices. I don't get it done. Where do you go? Mm-hmm. Big difference. So people are going to be running over the border to get cheap drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a joke. You don't think so? We're well, not, that's a joke. We're not heading for Carlisle, then. You must be joking. Thank you very much indeed, John. Let's go to Abdul. How are you? Good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Good morning. How are you this morning? All right? I'm very good, thank you. Right, OK. So you're a retailer, I believe. I am. You must, be, you must be rubbing your hands at this, then. I don't think so. Come on, no. then. Tell us. Tell us. Now, the, the question you were asking about uh, whether retailers uh, are, are going to profit from this uh, price hike, you probably find that uh, the, uh, the manufacturers will hike the price to Scotland and also the wholesalers that supply the retailers will hike the price to take a cut out of it. So I can't foresee retailers taking everything in the, the, the price differential. Um, that you know you were talking about the cheap side are going from you know just over three fifty to to the eleven pound mark. So uh, that's not going to happen. The other thing I would say is that uh, the sales are going to uh, uh, either totally uh, die or be very minimal. Um, so I don't see a, a huge profit uh, coming to retailers in that respect. Mm. See where I, where I came to the retailers bit was. It, in, in the legislation wording, it says retailers will, by law, have to charge at least 50 pence for each unit of alcohol. So that's what I'm thinking. OK, if a manufacturer and a wholesaler are operating one price across the UK, then yeah. they, they won't do that. But you, you think they will have a different price for Scotland? Yes, uh, they, will, they, will, they will make sure that um, they take their cut out of it. So... I can't see them passing uh, the, the prices, wholesale pricing, staying the same just now so that uh, uh, the retailers would benefit. Like I said, the, 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 it's a double-edged sword in that um, the sales will uh, uh, die mm-hmm. and uh, the, the margins will be gone. So I can't see retailers making huge profits out of it. Do you, as a, as a retailer, then, do you have a licence? Are you selling booze at yes, the moment? Yes, right. Yes. OK, so how will that affect you as far as... Um, Profits are concerned, maybe dropping. Do you see it yeah. going the other way that you lose money out of this? There's, there's, there's the couple of points I want to make out, to, to, especially to the retailers on the border. Now, this will decimate the retailing, convenience retailing on the border. 
Uh, just to give you an example, that um, you know the alcohol part of a retail business in the convenience sector, uh, small stores, uh, accounts for anywhere between maybe 25% to 50% of their overall turnover. So it's a huge part. So if we lose sales in that, that will then decimate you know, the overall costs. Our, our overheads are going to remain the same. So the profitability of uh, retailing uh, is going to go down. I foresee retailers, especially the ones that are going to be hardest to first are on the borders where people can just maybe drive over mm -hmm. five minutes later and get their alcohol and come back. The other thing is, you know, you, you know, people think, oh, will it be worth their while for the, the, the white van man to drive over the border? Yes, it will. Where there's an opportunity, there's always somebody to, there to take advantage of it. So if you can take an example of, say, somebody, this cheap cider, uh, you know, goes in from 350 to £11. Can you imagine a van full of that mm -hmm. going over the border? You're talking about several hundred pounds. So, yes, it's going to be worthwhile for somebody to drive over the border, pick it up, and then start selling it either from their home or from a van, from a car park, from anywhere. And, like I say, you lose that ability where a, a licensee will ensure that the person is over the age of, uh, of 21, and like I say, the checks that you know the, the, the licensing laws uh, have in place will be gone. And like I say, you've got no control over where that alcohol is sold and to whom. Mm -hmm. So there's the serious issues uh, in regards to, uh, like I say, the appearance uh, of the white van man over the border. So we could be back to selling alcohol, going back to the, the 30s and 40s, selling alcohol um, from, as you say, garden sheds or car parks or wherever. And, 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 yeah. What you'll find, Ali, is that you'll, you'll find that uh, uh, warehouses springing up uh, just over the border because it'll make uh, economic sense. It'll even make an economic sense for retailers then to drive over the border to pick up the cheap alcohol to sell. Um, so uh, it'll impact our wholesalers, it'll impact the, the, the whole trade uh, overall. Now, the other thing that's, that's never been spoken about is uh, the online retailing. Now, all Tesco and Asda and all these big supermarkets have to do is uh, offer these cheap products from being delivered from south of the border. So there's nothing to stop them selling alcohol, online alcohol, over the border at the discounted prices where there's no impact. So people can order online uh, to do a pick and drop from the, from the supermarket and get the lower prices. So, so long as it's all paid for online over the border. Right. So there's, there's, there's serious implications in terms of how this is managed. Uh, 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 and it will have, you know, the, the problem that we have is that by the time the impacts are felt, it's too late. A lot of retailers will have either gone bust or in the process of being gone bust, um, all for an experiment. And again, Alison didn't mention that this is only a five-year experiment because they, they have to go back to the government in five years' time, show them the results of it, and get approval to continue it. So it's, it's not a, a, a final um, uh, policy is just a temporary policy and an, a, a, an experiment to see how this will impact uh, alcohol drinking in Scotland. Interesting points, Abdul. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Abdul giving us the side of the retailer there and some, as he says, very interesting points. You can go online. That's a good one, that. I hadn't even thought of that. Uh, you can go online and, and order it um, and somebody will come up with a way you can do it to avoid the, the Scottish law uh, through ordering it through England. Abdul, thank you. Uh, let's go to Philip next. Hi, Philip. Very good morning, Ali. Good morning to you. Right, Hi. what's your point? Well, in my humble opinion, this is just the nanny state sticking its nose in again. Right. 
Uh, it's just another example of the Scottish government uh, being meddlesome busy buddies and they're trying to say, oh, we're doing this for the public good and they're never thinking it through what the consequences of their actions and your previous callers have just said. But what about the, the amount of lives that Alison was talking about that, could, that are lost to alcohol that could be saved over a year? It sounds good in principle. The devil's in the detail. You don't agree with it then? Or you don't accept the figures? Wow. If it's saving that amount of lives, surely something... And, and we're losing 120 lives a year to alcohol. We, we have to do something, surely. Well, that's just statistics, Al. We both know statistics can be manipulated. Well, if those are what are being given to you. I, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, yeah. I, I, I do. And, and, and I'm the first one, I've said this before, that I tend to agree with you on the nanny state that we're becoming. Yeah. Um, you know, rules here, rules there. You can't do this, you can't do that. Um, and it, it, is it getting to a stage of saying, hang on a minute, on your bike? Yeah, exactly. I honestly think that the real losers of this legislation are going to be the manufacturers, Sally. The people that actually make the products. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the stuff's not being sold, that's going to have an effect on production, and the long term is going to have an effect on jobs. Of course it is, yes. And if that goes down, just like Abdul was saying there, if, if the production goes down because it's not selling, then it will have an effect on the, the uh, manufacturers and it will work its way through to the retailers, particularly the small ones uh, that, that Abdul was talking about. What about that? Your caller mentioned earlier, earlier there about uh, buying alcohol online. What about duty free at the airports? This legislation going to affect them. Another yes. Everybody rushes for duty free, right enough. Thank. Well, I don't, but uh, many do. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Philip. I'm going to squeeze James in here before we take a quick break. James. Hello, James. Hello. Hello. Your point, please. Hello. Uh, hello, Ali. Uh, uh, I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for uh, 30 odd years now. But uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, I think uh, the lady, uh, was it Alison? Yeah. Uh, who said uh, the, 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 uh, e even the cheaper stuff uh, uh, will be, uh, alcoholics will basically um, uh, she was she was just she was saying that it that alcoholics will uh, budget themselves if you're a former budget, yeah. 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 did you ever budget yourself when you were an when you were an alcoholic or when you were drinking mm -hmm. heavily uh, not at all I'm still an alcoholic yeah uh, thankfully I don't drink now a day at a time but uh, no, uh, there was never, never anything, and uh, it was either a case of uh, actually uh, reading the, the medicine cabinet to get, you know, uh, something, you know, with with alcohol in it to, mm. uh, you know, uh, to, you know, placate you until such times as you could get. Uh, uh, more alcohol. You, you, uh, you're saying you're saying you you're still an alcoholic, and there is that saying that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Well, it? when was the last time you had alcohol? Then about thirty-two years ago. I thought that's but, what you said. That's a heck of a long time. You you must is it a struggle every day, or can you now, or can we say? Can I say congratulations on being alcohol-free for that amount of time? 
thank you. Uh, no, I will. Uh, I put it down to uh, AA and, uh, you know, what I learned there uh, because I was in a terrible state at that time. And uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, I, 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 don't, I didn't see myself, you know, being, uh, you know, a, a, fit, a, a fit member of society. Right. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to stop you there because we're piling up the calls. Thank you very much indeed for, for your uh, comment there. And um, take care, James. Thank you. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Patricia, good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Good morning. Your point, please. My point is this. I've just come back from holiday on Friday from Spain. It's only the second time in my life I've been in Spain. Right. Their alcohol is dirt cheap but they don't have a drink problem. The only people I saw drinking there were our people. The Spanish people were all sitting drinking coffee. And I was in a hotel which was about 50-50 Spanish and, and tourists. I was also in Portugal at the millennium 17 years ago when we had a massive celebration. The thousands of people gathered in the square that we were in. I saw one drunk person. The problem is the culture. It's not the price at all. We asked the barman, because they poured it the screen as if, you know, there was no tomorrow. And we asked the barman, how many drinks do you get out of a bottle? You know what he said? Eight. Eight? Eight Good out price. of a bottle. Mm-hmm. But there was, they were all sitting drinking coffee and still enjoying themselves the way we were. Mm-hmm. The big problem in this country, as I see it, because in the words of Earth famous Billy, who are these half-wits that sit and bring up these schemes, only oh, didn't use that four-letter word to describe it. Why don't they look at the real cause of the problem? Why do the people drink so much? Why? We've always had that problem in Scotland and Ireland, and I don't know about Wales, but Scotland and Ireland, yes, definitely. They never had it as much in England in the old days, but I've put it down to the lack of work. A lot of the, when the young people come out of school and they've got no education and nothing else to do, they either turn to drugs or alcohol. It's, it's, it's a cultural problem, and mm-hmm. it always has been. And, and it's, it's a problem that's been there for years, isn't it? Always, yeah. always, always. Yeah. But the pricing of it's not going to change because, as all the other callers are saying, they'll find a way of getting it. Mm-hmm. They always have done. But and when I was young, the, the alcoholics that were really in a bad state, they drank methylated spirits. They'll get it from somewhere. And another thing is, as well, if they've got a family, they'll be spending more money on the alcohol because they'll still get it. And the children will go with less food, like we used to in the oldies. Yeah, well, that's been said a few times and certainly a few comments coming through on social media on that as well. Uh, Patricia, thank you very much indeed for your thoughts. Let's go to John next. John, good morning. Good morning, Ali. How are you, my friend? I'm good, thank you. John, your thoughts on this today, then? Well, to me, to start off with, it's just another tax. It's all uh, I, I see it as... Um, Alison that was on the phone, I, I, I believe she's all got good intentions, but at the end of the day, if you're an alcoholic, Ali, just as the, the young lady has said before me, you'll find a way to get your booze. Now, over and above that, there is another marketplace which has been hinged just now, but isn't really uh, taken off, but will now, and that's home brew. 
Now, the problem with home brew is in making your own booze, it's very, very easy to do, and you can have drinkable booze within 14 days, if you do it right, even sooner than that with some of them. But the point is, if you drink it too soon, it's, only, it's going to be even worse for you. Now, most of the people who were drinking the cheap ciders and the cheap this and the cheap that were doing it for convenience sake. But if they have to, they will make their own. And that could, but when are they going? Yeah, I, 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 that just gives you more problems then, doesn't it? I, I would think, though, that, that that 50 pence minimum uh, it'll have to come in somewhere to the home brews. You know, somewhere, if anything has to do with alcohol, it will have to come into that minimum price. So they're going to have to pay more for the kit, surely. Well, we don't know this. We, do, we don't know this, Ali, because it's all blanketed. It's, it just seems that it's the, the, the cheap side. Um, they get the guy, the working gap man, who's struggling just now because he taxis and all the rest of it, is going to struggle even harder to get a drink. would like a glass of whiskey, but is having a glass of cider because that's all he can afford. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they're they're taking that away and saying, well, if you want to drink, you will drink, you will drink this whiskey or you will drink this that's up in that price bracket. Now we've got a budget coming in Wednesday. I've no doubt that alcohol and cigarettes will get hammered again with the fuel. Always the same old story for tax, tax, tax. But one point I've got to put across as well, Ali, is last week we saw statements of all the mega-rich smuggling their money away into foreign bank accounts and all the rest of it for tax avoidance. See if they'd put as much effort into hammering these people as they did this ridiculous thing, then the country would be in a far better state. John, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Keep your calls coming in if you would like to comment on the minimum price of alcohol. Also in the the next hour, I want to hear your thoughts on GPs. How easy is it to get an appointment in your practice? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Some practices seem to be run for the benefits of the GPs rather than the patients. Do you agree? What are your thoughts? New rules coming in, new contracts for GPs. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Right then, um, we've been talking about alcohol, of course, and we've uh, also, uh, just around the corner, be talking about doctors as well. But before we do that, Joseph's on the line. Hello, Joseph. Oh, good morning, Ali. Good morning to you. What's and your thoughts today then? Well, Ali, I think uh, the, the Scottish government and that, the, the, the woman, Alison, is talking through their heads. It's just like a smoke in the ban, uh, Ali. They don't smoke in the places, but they're all smoking outside the places. So it's not its not doing any good putting the prices up. An alcoholic is an alcoholic. He'll get the money and he'll spend it. He might not buy a meal for that day, but he'll spend it on, his, on the drink alley. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem they, they haven't looked at. And instead of shutting a lot of these hospitals down, why don't they keep a, a couple of hospitals open and treat the alcohol and the drug addict? But that's, is that not what they're trying to do, Joseph? They're trying, to, they're, they're, they're trying to get a remedy here. How long have they been treating alcoholics in hospitals yeah, in the, Scotland? And it hasn't worked, has it? But, but, but Ali, they're, they're only in a couple of rooms. They're not treating alcoholics regular. 
and some of them, I, I go over to the, 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 the Southern General Regular, and I see them outside, one leg, no legs, they're sitting there smoking and drinking, their friends bring them drink over, so it's not helping the problem, Ali. They'll, they'll drink, and they get the money and stop, same as I said, same as a cigarette, I heard a woman saying one time, I'd rather buy a cigarette and a loaf. Now, that's the problem, Ali. You've still got that problem in Scotland. And uh, the other thing I'll talk about is, yes, it's cheap in, in, in England. The drink is cheap. I've been in, in Carlisle, and it's dirt cheap to buy a, a pint of beer in Scotland, and it's cheaper in England. And it's because it's only in London, that's dear, high. But everybody, they'll go over the border, Ali, and they'll bring up plenty of drink back. So you just do not see this affecting at all, then? Ali, I, I, live, I live just off the town centre in Cook Adams. And I see them, and they're begging all the time. Not not the homeless people. I'm talking about the alcoholics. I've got them. I watch them from my balcony, and you see them come back with the carryouts every day, alley. So they get their money one day. The other one gets their money the next day. You know, the money the next day. So they, they all work it out, alley. They're not without drink. That's the problem we've got. Mm. You know. Okay. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Joseph. Willie Tracy's here. Hello, Willie. Hello, Ali. Uh, Ali. Listening to the experts earlier on, uh, the, the thought that came to my head was the road to hell's paved with good intentions. Uh, the, they, they're hoping, they're, they're not certain, they're hoping that this uh, unit price rise will, will solve a problem that's plagued Scotland for, for how long? I don't think so. All I see this as is an opportunity for organised crime. We're talking about white van man. It wouldn't be white van man. It would be a couple of heavies in white vans driving down to England on a Thursday, Friday morning, driving back up to Scotland, then distributing the, the wares around. The word will get around all, all the people who want cheap drink to be at a certain place at a certain time. Mm. And that's how it will, will evolve. But we, we will evolve a serious problem of bootlegging alcohol in Scotland. I mean, uh, there's a demand there now, and that demand will not go away. That demand will simply be met from another source, and that other source will be organised crime. Well, time will tell, as our two experts said. Um, you know, we, we, we'd uh, one there saying that we should come back to this in a couple of years, and it is only a, a five-year experiment, so um, we shall wait and see how it pans out. Uh, Willie, thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, I'd like to turn now, keep your calls coming in on alcohol, we'll talk, go, no doubt go back to it a little later on, but um, I'd, I'd like your thoughts on GPs and how easy it is to, to get an appointment, and we, we've um, uh, heard about people's problems on this this uh, programme before, where over the last few years you've been calling in and saying how difficult it is to get an appointment, etc, etc. Uh, when you do get one, you don't have enough time to speak to the doctors properly about your health anyway, although I'm sure the doctors could sit there all day talking to people who just want to come in for a chat. Um, and you never see the same doctor twice. Well, that's, that's you know, a, a, an accusation in some of them. It's not always true. I mean, I, I can. I can see in I've switched practices within the last couple of years and, and both practices have been very good. So if you want to wait for that particular GP, then fine. Um, but there are many places don't even have GPs and there is a national shortage. There is no doubt about that. A recent survey showed one in four practices in Scotland have got vacancies and in some places, entire practices are being closed down or handed over to the NHS to run directly. 
older GPs are heading off for retirement and not enough younger ones are coming in to replace them. So, what's to be done about it? Well, the solution from the Scottish Government and the British Medical Association is a new deal unveiled a couple of days ago. It promises to cut their workload give them more time with patients and tempt more doctors into general practice by promising they'll get paid at least £80,000 a year. The government's also going to pump in another £30 million over the next three years. Uh, Dr Alan McDevitt is the chair of the BMA's Scottish GP committee and local doctor in Clydebank. He's here to take your calls. Uh, Alan, good morning to you. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, this new deal then, is it going to solve all the problems right away, Alan? Or are we still going to have this problem of trying to get an appointment at the right time when it suits us, etc.? Well, I think, Ali, no contract is going to solve all the problems overnight, but I think it sets things in the right direction and it gives us a future where we can see things being solved. But it will require all of us to make sure that it works. Right. I, can I ask, do you think, as, as a GP, do you think we, the public, expect too much of our GPs? Uh, well... Uh, that may be true. I think society in general expects a lot of medicine and of GPs in particular. And GPs are actually the people that drive themselves the hardest. Um, and that's been part of the problem. We haven't recognised the uh, increasing workload and done enough about it to make sure that we can still encourage young doctors to become GPs. And is there a, I, I was surprised when I read some of the statistics that, you know, young doctors who are qualifying just don't want to go into general practice. Why? Why, what's, is there, are there areas that are more attractive to them once they qualify? I think that, that is true. I think what they've been saying is, unfortunately, in the press, all the negativity, both about GPs and workload, is leading young people to say, do I want a long working life being a GP in that kind of environment? So we've got you know, only 17.5% of students want to think about becoming a GP, and that's not nearly enough to keep us going into the future. Mm. A question again that's come up on this programme, why can't GPs open at the weekend? Well, you only have so many GPs, and at the moment we, we actually can struggle to cover the daytime hours. One in four practices with a vacancy. Remember, there are only so many hours in the day that a GP can work, and many will report a 12 to 14 hour day. When they've used up all their hours, there's no time left. So if you haven't had your problem solved or the, the important report from you from the hospital dealt with, then unfortunately that's just starting to run out of time. So we've had a 63% increase in consultations over the last 10 years, but within the same amount of GP time in the day. And we've got an older population needing a lot, need a lot more from us. Just like cars, really, as you get older, more things go wrong. You need more servicing and support and advice. And that increases the demand on GPs. And yet at the same time, we've got the same number, in fact, less hours in the day from GPs in the country. So you can see, therefore, it's a bit of a push getting it all in. Mm. But what about then the, the accusation that um, some GPs then, they work Monday to Friday and then they go do locum work at the weekends. If they can do locum work somewhere else or, or be on the 24-hour NHS system just at the weekends, could they not just open their own surgeries and, and work for their own patients? I think, Ali, you need doctors to work in out of hours on the weekends. I want my family to be looked after by GPs mm -hmm. at nights and weekends when that's needed. I think it's essential that we have GPs available to the population, and that's one of the areas where it's most difficult to get GPs to work now, because when they're exhausted from long days during the day, the last thing many of them want to do is go and do a long night as well. So we need doctors round the clock, and that shortage of GPs affects all of the services. Right, I've got um, uh, a note coming in here from uh, Jean, who's on social media, and she's saying that her local practice is actually closing down and they're waiting to find where they're going to be allocated to. 
Um, she's not criticising the closure of the practice. Um, she's saying, is this something new that, you, that doctors are now finding, that they just have to hand back the, the practice? This one's in Tayside, actually. Uh, and she's saying, you know, is, is this something new that we, we are now having doctor surgeries, GP surgeries actually closing? Well, hi, Jean. Yes, I think it's desperately sad when that situation. It's the first time in living memory we've ever had practice having to close. Now, it's much worse in England, for example, so we see what happens there down there for over two years. This has been quite a big issue. We're only just starting to see it in Scotland, and I think it's desperately sad for the patients concerned. And it's also sad that the GPs have found themselves in that position. And the problem will be those patients will now join other practice lists who are already busy and may have waiting times for appointments, and you can imagine that's going to make maintaining the services there even more challenging. So it's all the more urgent that we sort out the problem for recruiting new doctors and also keeping the ones we've got. And the new contract we've proposed is intended to address that, but it will take some time to turn this around. OK, tell us the, the main points in the new contract that is going to benefit um, the patients, i.e. our listeners. Well, from the patient's point of view, what they'll get is a much bigger choice of professional when they come to the practice. Um, at the moment, they might just be the GP and the practice nurse and healthcare assistant, but they'll also hopefully have in future a pharmacist in the practice to help with medication problems. They may have a physiotherapist, um, they may have an advanced nurse practitioner or indeed a paramedic who may help us with people who are housebound in terms of dealing with workload. And we, we at the BMA and the Royal College of GPs um, have published papers suggesting about 30% of what people currently see their GP for could be done by another professional. And in fact, last year, the Royal College of GPs in Scotland surveyed patients and fantastically patients agree that about 30% of what they have could be done by someone else. So we think that's one of the solutions to finding more capacity for seeing patients in future. And will you not, though, have to increase the, the GPs that are available you know, that, uh, and recruit them? How are you going to get them into this? Are you hoping that this new contract will be attractive to them then? Absolutely. Is that this, it? Yeah. This, it's about changing the mood music for young doctors, telling them that we've got a bright future in general practice in Scotland where you'll have enough time to deal with patients' needs and you'll be dealing with the patients that really need to see you. And at the same time, you'll be part of a strong, multi-professional team with lots of other people all working hard to make, get it right for patients. One of the reasons why medical students still become... Um, doctors it's in fact because of the social value of that and they still want to help people and being able to do that properly with a proper team is what will bring in bright young people mm. the idea of struggling to recruit people for jobs that pay 80 grand a year might strike some people as a little bit odd well, Ali, what I would say there is if I'll take anyone who can get through the entrance qualifications to do medicine, 10 years of university and training, work the long hours, take the responsibility for life and death decisions and go through patients' pain and suffering over a lifetime. I'll take anyone willing to do that, and I think that you have to pay well to get bright young people to take that up for a lifetime's work. I, I actually totally agree with you. It was a, there was a disagreement in the office the other day where someone uh, was saying, that's ridiculous, the amount of money. I said, no, it's not. If he's going to save your life, you know, <laughs> Exactly. Um, and, and you're right, the amount of uh, training that they go through. But uh, what, what, when, you, when you qualify then as uh, a doctor and you're coming out of university, medical school, whatever, what choices are open to you? Well, I mean, the choices then are, in fact, not just to become a doctor. And sadly, what we're seeing for the first time ever, some medical students choosing straight away to go into other, other jobs. 
uh, which we've never seen before. Uh, I met two medical students just a few months ago, and both of them were planning to go and do law when they finished. And you're thinking, well, whatever happened to that? Surely <laughs> medicine is a, a vocation and a, a passion in life. And, and I think that's how sad it is that medicine is no longer seen as attractive for young people for a whole lifetime's work. I mean, I've been a GP 28 years, uh, and most GPs will commit themselves to a population for a whole lifetime, and we wish that to continue. And I think a lot of that's about making this a place where bright young people want to be. These are some of the most highly qualified students that are around, and we definitely want them to choose medicine, and we definitely want them to choose general practice. So are we, are we finding that we're getting to a, an age situation then that, um, you know, that we're coming to a lot of those doctors who have, as you say, uh, given their, their whole lives to a, a local community, and it's now time for them to retire. Is it just a case that there are not enough there to replace them? Well, that is true, but sadly we're also losing doctors early because I think a lot of the time the workload and the stress, there is some evidence that a lot of doctors are in fact giving up in their 40s. Now, if we can persuade those doctors to stay on because we'll make the job a reasonable thing to do and reduce the workload intensity, then we could solve a lot of our problems now. So it's a problem both of bringing people into the profession but also hanging on to the doctors we've got. I think we've got to be very careful to hang on to the doctors we've got and value them properly. OK, if you've got a point you would like to make, whether you come through on social media or the phone number, here's the phone lines. It's 033-2020-401. Colin Brown's here. Hi, Colin. Hiya. What's your point to Alan? Now, what point is uh, about shutting hospitals and all that? And uh, I was actually thinking in Glasgow yesterday and uh, see that in York Hill and all that, shut York Hill and open that new one. There's actually things saying they could actually... You shop uh, York Hill for uh, homeless people. It's actually out in the streets. So I'm not quite sure what that's got to do with Alan, but that is your point then, is it? That they should uh, be... It's just the thing with a big bulb in a hospital they're not using it anymore. Right. And they can actually use that for uh, homeless people in Glasgow. Right. Um, an interesting one, but one I wouldn't think you were qualified to answer on, Alan. Not particularly, but two things on that. One is the NHS is still using York Hill Hospital at the moment for some of our services as it's transitioning into the new setup with the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. But mm -hmm. I think the issue of homeless, I think we'll take any bright ideas on how we can improve that. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Colin, for, for throwing that in there. Um, just before you came on, Alan, we, we've been talking for the first hour of the programme. It's taken up a, a, a lot of time and uh, a a lot of interesting calls as well about um, the, the the minimum price on alcohol that's uh, likely to come in or will now come in, and we're getting round to talking about the the effect it has on alcoholics. And in, in, as a GP in general practice yourself, is is this something that is uh, coming to you more and more now than has been? Are, are all these fears that we're getting flagged up? Uh, are you seeing it as a GP on your doorstep? I absolutely am. I mean, years and years of devastation of lives, both of the individuals concerned and their families. I mean, it's dispiriting to see that we're still facing the same, if not greater, problems with alcohol in Scotland than we did 20 years ago when I joined this. Um, for people's loss of dignity and health and the shortening of their lives, as well as the devastation to children and par parents and relatives, we have failed to make a difference to this. There is evidence that this will help the, the, those most damaged by alcohol. And to be honest, it's time we did something, and I'm very much in support of what the Scottish Government has done. We made a big difference to smoking in the same mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, let's do it in Scotland this way. Right, so you're agreeing that we're leading the way. And, Absolutely. Uh, right, OK. Alan, please bear with us uh, for a few moments. We'll take a quick break and back in, in uh, a couple of minutes. Scotland's Talkin', the podcast.
Lots of comments coming in on social media regarding the alcohol and the minimum price. Uh, we'll come back to that, but at the moment I'm joined by Dr Alan McDevitt, who is the chair of the BMA Scottish GP Committee and a local doctor in Clydebank. Um, just going back to, uh, Alan, the, um, the whole contract that's coming in from the government, how has it been received uh, by, your, you know, what's your feeling that you're getting from uh, feedback from the young doctors that you're looking to recruit? Well, Ali, so far I've just come from uh, going around Scotland, part of Scotland at least this week, telling GPs about the new contract, and I have to say it's been received very positively. But I think it's true that GPs have a degree of scepticism about it actually going to happen, and I suppose they still need to believe that it definitely will happen after years of underinvestment in general practice, and also, frankly, political and media criticism of GPs, they're a bit... Um, they take, it'll take a bit of persuading to believe that we'll turn around this and be positive and support GPs in making this change. So they need to be convinced, and that's partly why we've signed this agreement with the government, but also why politicians need to get behind this and say it will happen, and with the management of the NHS. What is the main points that you're selling to them then, or that are coming out of it that are going to benefit them? Well, a much, more, a much less risky situation. I mean, it's complicated how GPs are funded, but some of them are at risk of going bankrupt because of their buildings and their mm -hmm. staff and things like that. So we're making that a lot safer. We're also going to provide new staff into practice, as I said earlier, to give patients a greater choice of which profession they can see, and that would help GPs workload enormously. Now, we do have to recruit all those new professionals, and if, if there's a word goes out from here, it's come and join us in general practice. It's going to be the brightest and best place to work in a primary healthcare team. But we need those new staff to come in and be there to actually take on this work, because if the staff don't turn up or if the finance doesn't come in to make this happen, then clearly this won't. So we've written the contract in a way to give GPs as much guarantees as we can that this is actually what's going to happen. What I want to see is our politicians and our NHS management getting in behind that, which they have done and what they've signed up to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was quite surprised when I, I, I read in one part of it where we were talking about that this week that uh, uh, there were some doctors, uh, GPs, practices, in, in essence, were ready to go bankrupt because they couldn't afford all the costs. And I was quite shocked at that, actually, that, you know, that, that was a situation that we got ourselves into. It is, and it's, it's a long list of different problems in the past that have led us here. But, I mean, things like large buildings, when GPs started out, you used to own somebody's house, so it was easy if you closed the price or moved, you just sold the house as a house. But not many people want to live in a GP surgery nowadays, so they mm. don't have the same value in the market they used to, and yet GPs have borrowed their own, taking their own personal risk on a mortgage for that premises. So if they have to close and nobody else wants it, then they're left with a white elephant. So there are all sorts of complications in there. But this contract, I think, solidly, um, resolves those issues going forward, both for GPs owning their premises and those who've got leases. And that takes a lot of the weight off individuals who shouldn't be under threat of bankruptcy or other um, financial problems mm -hmm. because they're running services for the NHS. You mentioned there, you know, that the uh, uh, doctors have been criticised and, you know, in the, uh, by the public, by politicians, etc. So going into this, and the Scottish Government have been criticised as well, but uh, going into this new contract and these negotiations, were the GPs holding the Scottish Government to ransom? Not at all. I think the difference was that we could both see the problem, and I think this time both the politicians, the government and the GPs, we can all see the problem. We then agreed we have to solve it, and we actually got together in a very different way. We worked very collaboratively um, to come together to find the solutions to this because we knew where we wanted to get to and just how we got there is a job that we've been working on together. And this contract is a very new way in terms of public service reform of trying to solve those problems jointly.
Great. Well, we'll keep our eyes on this one and uh, hope for everybody's benefit that it uh, gets resolved fairly soon and this contract is, is workable. Um, how long do you think before patients will start to see the benefits in the surgeries? Well, if the GPs agree to this by in our poll by the sort of middle of January, then it would start on 1st of April and you'll start to see changes, but it will take a full three years to see these changes come in in full. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, today, Alan, and, and uh, giving us an insight into it and, and to some of the problems that the GPs face as well. Dr Alan McDevitt, Chair of the BMA Scottish GP Committee. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. So uh, there's the calls. There's, uh, the phone lines are open for your calls, of course, on that or the other subject we're talking about, minimum pricing. As I say, lots of calls coming in and, and uh, lots on the uh, um, alcohol situation. Here's one that comes in that says, uh, alcoholics will always get alcohol. I've seen them stealing the hand wash from hospitals years ago when I was young. They drank hair lacquer and some tapped gas pipes. Um, do we want to go back to those days by putting the price up? Uh, thank you for that. Uh, alcohol problem is because it's too easily available, uh, says this one here. It's a case of back to the good old days when pubs shut in the afternoon and shut at 10 at night. And no such thing as buying in supermarkets. That's from H in Edinburgh. Is that really the answer? Taking us all back to those days? I'm not sure. Uh, what about the cheap bars in Parliament? When does that get addressed? That's from Gregor. Thank you, in Fallon. Thanks for that. Um, keep those coming in here. Uh, I think the theory putting the price up on some alcoholic drink might work, but reality, it depends on how badly some people want it. That's very true. It's very true. It's the same when they keep putting up the price of cigarettes, so time will tell if this works. And one more at the moment from Jim and Stirling. The price thing on alcohol, I think if people want it, the chances are they'll get it and cut back on rent, etc., etc. So who will gain and who will suffer? Thank you for that. So we also want to talk about what harm can it do to give your grandchildren a little treat? Well, quite a lot, according to the so-called experts at Glasgow University. We'll talk about that next. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. A very good morning, Brian and David. Just hang on, I'll be with you in a few seconds. I'm going to ask the question here, what harm can it do to give the grandchildren a little treat? Quite a lot according to some. The academics at Glasgow University have produced a report saying that grandmothers and grandfathers are inadvertently risking children's health as they grow up and even increasing their risk of getting cancer. They say it's down to things like giving them sweeties, always feeding them their favourite foods, letting them sit and watch too much TV or play computer games for hours on end. The older generation are also more likely to smoke in front of youngsters, they say. And now that more and more work mums and dads are relying on granny and grandad for childcare, it's more of an issue than ever before. Colin Stone has been talking to the lead author on the report, Dr Stephanie Chambers, for Scotland's Talking. We were uh, leading this work uh, and working with colleagues at NHS Tayside and Universities of Edinburgh and Stirling. Um, uh, we've done quite a bit of work around diet in the past uh, and our colleagues have looked at smoking so we wanted to look at um, the literature more widely from across the world in terms of the, the role of grandparents and um, impacting their, their grandchildren's um, long-term cancer risk factors. And what was the main finding in terms of the cancer risk factor? 
Yeah, so what we found was that grandparents um, overall tended to be having an adverse um, impact on those risk factors, um, unintentionally, of course, but um, you know, through over-treating grandchildren, perhaps over-feeding them, um, sometimes smoking in front of them, um, when parents you know, would prefer that these kind of behaviours weren't carried out. Um, and then that, of course, creates tensions within families. Were you surprised by what the findings were? Um, I think we thought that it could be an issue, and this is why we wanted to look into it a bit further. Um, but perhaps we were surprised at how many of the studies were um, drawing these kind of conclusions about grandparents, and uh, there was quite a kind of strong um, story coming across. Um, but, of course, what we were surprised about was that most of these studies were only sort of from parents' point of view, so we weren't finding out what grandparents were thinking about this and, and maybe why they were acting in these ways. Do you think grandparents are aware of the, as you say, unintentional effects that they may be having? Um, probably not always. Um, you know, a few of the studies look at the idea of, um, you know, grandparents want to treat their grandchildren and, you know, create bonds with them and... Um, so we think that perhaps that there are other ways that they could do that and they could achieve that, um, perhaps through encouraging physical activity, taking kids to the park, to the swimming, things like that. Um, but, yeah, they, they probably aren't aware that um, these habits that are established early in life can, can last you know, throughout the, life, the lifetime. And when you say it's the risk of long-term illness, this isn't as black and white as grandparents give their grandkids cancer, is it? No, not at all, not at all, no, no. Um, as I was saying, it's really um, about trying to establish early in life, you know, healthy habits, making sure that um, diets are as healthy as they can be, that children are used to taking part in exercise and activity, that they're not spending lots of time in front of screens, um, that they're not seeing people um, smoking um, frequently and they're not being exposed to um, tobacco smoke. Because um, we know that all these things over the lifetime can build up and that's what perhaps would lead to a long-term risk for cancer. Do you think anything then needs to change in how healthy eating is, is marketed? Um, I think the main thing is also just to say that I mean, parents are targeted a lot with you know, health messages and advice, but what we're wondering is if maybe grandparents are getting missed out in terms of those messages. So it really is you know, a family approach to bringing up children, so we'd really urge those messages to, to reach grandparents and to, to understand their point of view as well. So, granny and granddad, mum and dad, does any of that sound familiar to you? Are you guilty of spoiling your grandchildren with sugary treats? Or do you get into a row with your son or daughter for undermining their ground rules on he healthy eating? Don't tell mummy. If you're a mum or a dad, do you have a difference of opinion with your parents on what the kids should eat or drink? Or is all of this a load of old rubbish? What do you think? Give us a call, 0333 2020 or you can text the text number 61054. Start your message with Ali. Email is ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk. You've got something to say on it? Let's hear it. Is it a load of rubbish or indeed do you agree? Let's hear from you. Uh, let's go to David. David wants to talk about a previous subject we were on. Uh, David, good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Good morning. What's your point today then? What do you want to talk about? Yeah. Right, the government has this minimum price on alcohol. Okay. Well, why then is it if a person is a registered alcohol or registered drug addict, they get a supplement with their benefits to pay for it? 
Surely that's a bit like the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus talked about praying openly to get to make themselves look good. You know, the can't. It's like you know, you don't do one thing and then replace it with another. Mm-hmm. You know, if they really are a hundred percent serious, then I just say, right, you just don't get this supplement. So, because at the end of the day, the taxpayer is still paying for it. What what supplement are you talking about, David? If a person is an alcoholic, they get an extra thirty something pound a week. Really? Yep. It's the same for a drug addict on their benefit. I'm disabled, mm-hmm. and say if I need what to do, like chairs from a wheelchair. If I go to a, a disability shop, then tires are going to cost me over hundred pound each. If they get a battery box, a hundred and eighty-eight pound from a disability shop, but yet I can go along to a caravan shop and get the exact same battery box for £15. <laughs> and again, the government's not doing nothing. Yeah. Paying shop around then, isn't it? Pays to shop around, David. Yeah, well, actually, the government should be doing more. I mean, these people... Why should the government be more, do more? Should it not be... Because should we not be standing up and helping ourselves and not expecting the government to do everything, David? Yeah, but these people are selling to the National Health Service. And this is the prices that the National Health Service are having to pay. Yeah, yeah. And then people are saying, well, where's all our budgets gone? So, it's, it, you see, it's, it, it's the... It's the local health services that should be getting together and driving down the prices, not just accepting the prices that they're being uh, offered. Yeah, that what you're government saying? put a, a price commission on. Mm-hmm. So we should, and then maybe we'll have more, more funds for proper nursing and that. The other week I was taken into a, a hospital. My first night and half the next day I spent in a car door, a cold freezing car door on a gurney because I didn't have any beds or I didn't have the staff. I had to use a breathing machine at night. I didn't so, know where to plug it in. So you were just left lying in the corridor? Yep. Mm. Not good news, David. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, Brian's here with a different point of view and a different subject, Brian. Brian, good morning to you. Hello there. Good morning, I. Uh, right. This is, this is me again. Like, well, one way talk, but I was listening to the conversation about the doctor, the, the doctor that was on, and about the practices. Well, I'm in Wallace Town, right? Okay. And to me, they've got an open surgery. So you walk in... Well, between eight and ten o'clock, that's when you go. There's folks standing at the door, I believe, I've never done it, but I mean, hearing there's folks standing at the door at half seven in the morning just again so they try and get away quicker. That's that's regular, that happens in, in a few yeah. surgeries, yeah. Right, okay, well, that's fine, I, never, I didn't know that, I thought mm. it was maybe just mine. And it's like uh, you didn't get to see the same doctor you've had maybe done for years and years and if you ever shout your name, you've got to go, right? Right. And explain it. He could whatever's wrong with you. Yeah, he'll maybe give you some for this, and then the next thing, and then if you've got to go back again, you get another doctor, and he gives you something else to get prescribed for something else. You know, is that, is that a good system in your mind, Brian? No, or no, no, no. no. Right. I don't okay. think so. To me, it's not working because you've also got you've got to give blood as well between nine o'clock and ten. Right. So you've got another folk coming in to give blood 
plus a pound of serving to get sent to the doctor, and it's more. It's if, I was going to say, if you go down in in that time period that you're allowed to go down, how long yeah. do you normally have to sit and wait? Well, you could be waiting for ages. I've seen me maybe sitting there for just say, for instance, I go down maybe about twenty past nine. I can be getting out quarter twelve. Then I get. Out. That's yeah. the way it, I, I don't think it's working. No, for me, no, that, that's that's not a good system. No, and uh, as you say, sometimes they've got another doctor that comes in, plus maybe one's on, maybe on holiday, some other place. Mm-hmm. So you can't do anything, but you just got another doctor. I don't know where they come from, but and you try and explain things to them, and they completely just don't care what's going on with them. <laughs> as, to me, it's not working. No, I, I I'd agree with you. It's not a good system. Um, and it's not something that somebody who's working could even cope with by going down at that time in the morning, not know when they're going to get out. Uh, thanks for raising that. I'm, I'm racing through calls now. Um, we've got Graham here. Hi, Graham. Hello there. Hello there, Graham. You're through. What's your point, please? The doctor's surgery? Yep. We've got a, a, we've got a lovely surgery. Could you go and turn your radio off, please? Because you're listening to yourself. That is that is a problem. Let me just um, come to uh, a note that's come in here. And it's from Dot. And she says, oh, she says that, uh, that piece you were talking about there, grandparents have an adverse effect on children. They smoke, overfeed and, get, overfeed and give sweets to children. I am so angry I can hardly type this. I and my husband do the necessary school runs and look after our grandchildren. We don't smoke and I'm sure that those who do don't do it in front of the children. We do give them sweets, but don't overdo it. They're all healthy. I'm so fed up of these so-called do-gooders. I hope that the doctor who made the report never needs the help of grandparents. Thank you very much indeed for that, then. That will be Dr Stephanie Chambers told by Dot. Thank you, Dot. Graham, right, we're back with you. What were you saying? Hello there. We've got a lovely surgery in our boat. Yes, keep going, come on, we're running out of time. And it's good. Is that the point? Right, OK, that's the point. Uh, grannies and granddads have spoilt their grandkids for years. My mother and... This is from Joyce. My mother, granny and great-granny did it too. That's what grannies are for, right? If my son or daughter say they shouldn't have X or Y, then I respect that. Thank you. Um, my, my, the do-gooders are out in force today is in the water, says this one. <laughs> yeah, it's a full moon. Uh, thank you. Uh, what is next? Put the price of food out of reach to stop obesity. It will not work. Well, that's for me. Oh, I see what you mean, right? Is that another thing that we're getting ready to do? And here's one that says, uh, it's from Liz, I agree with the gentleman that said it's the way forward to save the flagging NHS as we don't want any more doctor surgeries having to close. That would be a disastrous situation. It would be, actually. We don't want them to close. Seeing the problems that those that are closing are causing. Last word on the programme goes to Andrina, who just... Uh, a long email, <laughs> but I can't go through it all, but she says, My husband is a specialist paramedic, urgent and emergency care practitioner. He's employed by the Scottish Ambulance Service, and this goes back to uh, working with GP practices. She says that he's uh, highly trained, uh, highly skilled, and they are experienced clinicians, and they are part of the new contract, which, in my opinion, says Adrina, is great for the patients. Well, as we've said before, time will tell, but we certainly hope so. We have run out of time. Thank you very 
much indeed for your company today. This has been Scotland's Talking. I'm Ali Bally, back at 10 tomorrow morning with the Ali Bally Show. Bye-bye. Scotland's Talking, the podcast.